This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Leanne Statuto and Stephanie Lavalado speak with Alexa Blaine and Fernando Alvarado of Deakin Impact. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the Impact Report today. My name is Stephanie Lavalado, and I'm here with my colleague, Leanne Statuto. We are both current students of the Bard MBA in Sustainability Graduate Program, and we're here today to interview Deakin Impact, a Canadian impact investing firm with a mission to make a social and environmental impact in the Americas, the deep focus on Latin America and the Caribbean. I will turn it over to my colleague, Leanne, to introduce our guest speakers. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, joining us today are Alexa Blaine and Fernando Alvarado. Alexa is a co-founder and managing partner at Deacon Impact and is responsible for finance, operations, and investor relations. Fernando is the CEO of Deacon Impact Sustainable Energy, leading as a general partner and investment advisor for clean energy and energy efficiency projects. Welcome, Alexa and Fernando, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie and Leanne. Great to be here. Great. So I'm going to just jump right in with our first question. Um, so impact investing has really become a buzzword in the past few years. I'm curious how Deakin Impact differentiates from other investing firms out there. Could you share a little bit more about your investment focus and the untapped opportunities for growth that you seek out? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go first. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, for us, um, it's not so much about uh, trying to differentiate ourselves as an impact investor. For us, it's more about being committed um, to consistently measuring, uh, reporting, and communicating our uh, impacts uh, derived from our investee companies. So uh, from that point of view, uh, we actually you know, have uh, rigorous procedures and tools that we uh, you know, use to develop our regular investment activity in the region. Uh, but I would say perhaps the sort of how we, how we stand uh, before other impact investors uh, in, let's say, the clean energy space is that we actually focus in the Central America and the Caribbean regions and uh, especially servicing the niche of what we could call the small and medium enterprises of the clean energy sector, the SMEs. Uh, We have been traditionally doing that for, you know, quite a long time already. And I would say that that's perhaps our our main uh, differentiation when it comes to other impact investors that are also operating in the region. Um, I don't know, Alexa, if if you want to add to that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great a great summary, and I might just add that um, you know impact investing is a lot like other types of investing. Track record really matters. Always. The Deakin team has been investing this way since since before it was called impact investing. Um, you know, we focus on high quality businesses that operate sustainably without reliance on ongoing grant funding or subsidization, and you know, we look for businesses that are benefiting their communities by providing really important services. So 
clean energy is, is a clear example, um, financial services for women building small businesses or sustainable agriculture. And, and we choose these businesses because they align with our values and contribute to more sustainable and equal economies, but also because these sectors are, are resilient and offer good downside protection through cycles and, and through the unpredictability that, that can come with investing in emerging markets. Um, you know, these, these aren't always the most exciting or cutting edge businesses, but really backbone type services. And I think our network in the region and our track record of identifying these kinds of opportunities and managing assets through economic cycles is something that we bring to the table um, as a team. Great. That, that's fascinating. Um, I'm curious if you could just speak a little bit more about the rigorous tools that you use to measure the impact. Yes. Your, your timing certainly. is great because we just we just had a, a webinar on this, Fernando. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. Exactly. So uh, we actually did a webinar uh, for our investee companies at, at the high level of the project sponsors, uh, in which we were firstly, you know, trying to um, emphasize on the importance of, of being really committed to impact monitoring, reporting, and communicating, uh, and then how, um, you know, that can benefit their, the sustainability of their own businesses. Obviously, uh, we were also showing how we account for that in our regular investment, uh, you know, activities and why that is important to our investors and, and to us as, as fund managers. And lastly, in that webinar, we then shared the, let's say, the tools that we have developed in-house to properly monitor uh, and measure the impact. So essentially what we have is a, um, let's say, a questionnaire uh, divided by, uh, by sustainable development goals, those that, uh, you know, we, we uh, are mostly committed to, which are like, uh, I think four or five of them being the first one and SDG number seven of clean, affordable and electricity energy for all. And uh, for each um, SDG, we would have, you know, different, uh, let's say questions that we uh, have and then the sponsors would have to answer to gradually, uh, you know, collect the information that their uh, companies uh, normally generate. Um, so, for example, with respect to electricity, we would measure like um, generation in kilowatt hours, uh, penetration of clean energy with respect to the energy matrices, uh, et cetera, and so on. So essentially, uh, the tool guides the, our, our clients through each of the, of the SDGs um, and um, they, for, for every answer, we're trying to capture quanti quantitative data, but also uh, qualitative. And there's like on the side, uh, you know, a section for comments or, or additional details that, you know, can actually illustrate better what is being achieved. Um, and uh, in that way, they can, you know, be much more comprehensive in terms of uh, establishing the impacts and reporting at them to us than if they you know, didn't have that, that, that tool uh, with the purpose or with the objective of then obviously collecting all the different, uh, let's say, questionnaires from the different investing companies and be, then being able to aggregate them 
and properly report them in the quarterly reports that we normally submit to our investors, as well as to properly post that information, the aggregated information in our uh, webpage and, and social media channels uh, and so on, presentations that we make at times in different you know, conferences and workshops as well. I've got a quick follow-up question to that. Um, one, it's, it's really interesting to hear the, the method of disclosure that you use to collect the impact data. And you mentioned feeding that into your quarterly reports to your investors. How frequently are you collecting this information from the projects you're investing in? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, so we are collecting this information on a monthly basis, um, but we are reporting it to our investors on a quarterly basis. Great. Um, I'm going to transition just a bit. So between the two of you, you have close to four decades of experience in finance and investing. I'd love to hear more about your journey to the impact investing space in general. Um, can you tell us a bit about your professional backgrounds and what really led you to Deepkin? I'll let you go first, Alexa. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, um, my background's in, in finance. Um, I started in uh, investment banking and um, I, I was working with a uh, uh, infrastructure focused investment bank called Macquarie. And from there, I went to equity portfolio management with one of Canada's largest pension funds. And um, I really enjoyed uh, what I was doing, but I think at some point it started to feel a bit abstract, um, you know, because we would do these $500 million deals, um, but I didn't feel that connected to our investors or to the companies in which we were investing. And, you know, I kind of thought that no matter, you know, how good or badly I did on a given day that, you know, it would maybe have like a one basis point difference overall on, on this giant fund. Um, and so at that point, I took a bit of a leap and, and I moved from uh, Toronto, where I was living at the time, to Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, to work with African Alliance, uh, a pan-African investment bank. And um, I, I worked there to help with the expansion of their retail financial services uh, and housing microfinance products in some new markets in sub-Saharan Africa, and also with raising capital from development finance institutions. And um, absolutely loved it. I ended up staying for several years. Uh, eventually, you know, decided to move home to Canada because Johannesburg is really, really far away from Vancouver <laughs> and, um, you know, thought that might be the end of my impact investing career since at the time, you know, impact investing was really nascent in Canada. Um, but I was fortunate to cross paths at that time with my now business partners at Dietken, um, who wanted to build an impact focused asset management firm. Uh, that would make it possible for Canadians uh, as well as international investors to invest internationally uh, with a focus on Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, we became registered with securities commissions across the country and um, so that we could act as a portfolio manager and an investment fund manager. And thereafter, um, we launched the ELU Women's Empowerment Fund in uh, 2016. And then more recently, um, we formed our partnership with uh, with Fernando, who um, he can share how his firm uh, began. And uh, so we now have staff and presence in in Canada, in Costa Rica, in Honduras, Jamaica, and Peru. Yeah. So I uh, started, um, I would say, working. I mean, studying. Um, business management and then I did an MBA in an emphasis on banking and finance. This was in the 
late 80s, uh, early 90s. And then at the time I was studying, uh, I worked for two uh, corporations, one selling uh, consumer goods and then later on a company uh, on agribusiness, coffee actually specifically. And from there on, I was um, lucky enough to start working for a commercial bank, but not necessarily uh, dealing with, let's say, the, the boring uh, short-term uh, credit lines for working capital needs, but rather uh, working on project finance. At the time, uh, this bank that I was working for in Costa Rica was intermediating credit facilities from USAID and the IFC of the World Bank. So we're starting to finance what we were calling at the time non-traditional exports or non-traditional activities. Costa Rica had traditionally been an exporter of, of sugar and uh, coffee and bananas, and, and the, con the country at the time was trying to diver diversify um, its uh, you know economic apparatus, especially into tourism, as as you know it's it's big, and um, and other industries. And so uh, I was lucky. I say I was lucky enough because uh, the kind of transactions I was doing were, let's say, more scientific in the sense that I had to actually put in practice all that I had studied uh, on on at the university and from the MBA in terms of you know project assessment, financial projections, uh, sensitivity analysis, and so on and so forth. From there, I uh, um, was hired by Citibank that had years in Costa Rica, but only as a rep office and was at, at that moment, um, you know, setting a full-fledged commercial banking operation. So I was hired actually to, with another uh, colleague to start the credit department from scratch. So that was actually a quite interesting experience. And... Um, few years uh, after being with Citibank, I uh, was connected with an investment uh, boutique sponsored by the IFC here in Central America that at the time was trying to, uh, you know, help the largest, uh, you know, economic groups or, or corporate groups here in the region in Central America access long-term financing from, I, from IFC and other development finance institutions. So that was actually quite uh, interesting uh, to have that exposure to different economic groups. And uh, while I was working for that firm back in 1999, um, the IDB recommended our firm to help a company based in New, Jer in New Jersey uh, named Ianco uh, to uh, perhaps collaborate with their clean energy portfolio in Latin America and the Caribbean. At the time, Ianco was um, a pioneer in terms of supporting uh, clean energy SMEs. They were active in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. And in Latin America, they were mainly using funds from IDB, and, um, but they were not necessarily financiers or bankers per se. They were more from the technical area. And so IDB considered that they needed or they could benefit from, from bringing in bankers. So I started with Ianco back in 1999 uh, doing clean energy. I, I was hired as their regional manager for, for, the, for the whole ag region and um, worked for this group until 2010. In the in the somewhere along the, you know in the in the process, I actually did um, our first project finance fund 
in the in the true sense of a fund because Ianco was not necessarily a, a, a fund or a project finance fund. It was more like a financial services company that would uh, provide incubation services combined with seed capital to early stage, you know, clean energy ventures. Uh, but you know, we also wanted to sort of start innovating uh, on on investment funds. And so I was the first one within the organization to, you know, design a fund, fundraise for it, structure it, and then launch and operate it for several years. Uh, after which, uh, when we were like 80% invested, I left the fund to help a friend in the state sell a company that happened quite, you know, quickly. And soon after I came back to the region to, did cons to do consulting work for IDB, World Bank and others. And actually, one of the last uh, consulting jobs sort of, you know, provided the foundation for the uh, structuring of the first of the two funds, of the two clean, clean energy funds that we currently have under operation. And then after we launched the first fund, they indicated that there was additional money and interest to do a similar fund for the Caribbean. So we, again, uh, you know, put together a team of professionals to compete for the management of that second fund. And in the end, we ended up, you know, winning the mandate and, and operating the fund. Uh, while I was fundraising uh, for the first fund, actually, and this is perhaps 2016, 2017, uh, an organization in Honduras connected me with Beacon Impact, and I started talking to them with the intention of bringing them on board as investors to the funds, which they did. Uh, but at the same time, they expressed an interest for partnering at the GP level. So after a process of getting to know each other, uh, we ended up uh, partnering. Uh, initially, uh, they came in as a small partner and later on uh, basically became uh, an equal partner in our uh, fund management companies. Um, and uh, we have been operating since, um, I would say, for the last couple of years and right now totally focused on the, uh, you know, final stages of investing all the capital that we have committed for these two funds and already starting to think about the, about the future, given the, the opportunities that we, we see in the region. That's great. Both extremely uh, impressive and detailed backgrounds. And it's certainly helpful to hear as an MBA student, you know, those of us in the sustainability program, um, knowing that a career path is not always straight and that every step is a stepping stone in the right direction to, you know, what seems to be long-term impact for both of you. Um, Alexa, you had mentioned earlier that uh, Deakin was created to, to support international investors and you have staff across the globe. So can you guys speak to um, how you came to focus on Latin America and the Caribbean and, and how many employees uh, support this work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fernando and I were actually just uh, counting counting all the people uh, today, and uh, you know I think we've we've grown a lot um, over a relatively short time frame, and so I think we now have 17 staff. Uh, so that includes um, our investment professionals, um, our our back office personnel, as well as uh, technical advisors who support the technical and environmental due diligence of the sustainable energy uh, investments. Uh, and so we have um, the largest office would be in uh, in Costa Rica and then uh, in Honduras, the technical uh, advisors are based there. And then we also have staff in uh, in Peru and in, in Canada. And, um, you know, I think uh, at this point, 
you know, we have only uh, Canada as a relatively small office. Um, we just have three staff uh, based in, in our office in Vancouver with an emphasis on um, uh, investor relations, communications uh, and business development and then have the investment functions are, are carried out from our from our other offices uh, for the most part um, is how, how we've set it up. And I think, you know, having that Canadian president presence has been uh, has been really uh, helpful, I think, in in part because we're looking to bring on new sources of capital to the impact space. I think, you know, for a long time, it's been um, primarily development finance institutions that are working in this space. And increasingly, we're seeing some private sector sources of capital um, come to the table, like foundations and family offices and, and even more mainstream institutions like credit unions and, and pension funds. And our, our Canadian presence has been has been helpful in that, you know, we have been able to bring some Canadian institutions into the funds, uh, including, um, you know, a credit union and several um, small private foundations. And, you know, I think we see that as part of um, our mission is really to expand um, the, the the kinds of institutions and, and individuals that, that can participate in impact investing. Um, on the individual side, we've we've emphasized, you know, making in particular the ELU Women's Empowerment Fund uh, accessible to, to individual investors. So, you know, we structured uh, an impact bond product that uh, could be held in uh, the Canadian equivalent of like a 401k. It's called a, an RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan. And um, we've been really pleased with the traction that we've gotten amongst individual investors. And, you know, in the case of the of the ELU fund, which is a, a gender lens investing fund, that we've been able to raise um, a lot of that capital from women investors uh, who typically have been kind of underrepresented uh, amongst private equity investors. Um, yeah. Awesome. And in our case, in our case, you know, we were always here in in the region. We are native Latin Americans, and um, as I mentioned before, when I started working with Ianco back in 1999, uh, I was uh, doing business in South America, Central America, Mexico, uh, and the Caribbean. So obviously, we were able to start uh, developing our network of contacts, um, which. Uh, you know, have also uh, been instrumental in terms of our success, especially now that we're more focused on just Central America and in the Caribbean. It's important to understand that in all this time, we have seen an evolution of, uh, you know, uh, the whole renewable energy sector. Uh, at that time, you know, there were very few project uh, sponsors, especially when considering the, the small and medium-sized uh, projects, uh, mostly were family-owned, so they were, let's say, not very sophisticated, uh, facing lots of challenges. From that point of view, it was important, say, the, the incubation that we were providing, but also gradually trying to bring along uh, development finance institutions, commercial banks to uh, also share the risks. So fast forward, you know, 10, 20 years, now renewable energy is, uh, you know, a mature sector that is well understood by most uh, commercial and development bankers here uh, in the region and also international. Uh, and at the same time, we have seen the whole uh, project develop uh, development community maturing such that nowadays, rather than perhaps developing a little project here and there, we are seeing, uh, you know, uh, business groups 
that are now thinking in terms of serial uh, projects or, or, you know, project portfolios. And that obviously is helping us, you know, do more business in the region. So being here, a local understanding and knowing who's who and, and really, you know, uh, mastering the culture is, I, I would say, part of, of what makes us, or at least our, our work, uh, easier. And at the same time, I would say also very, very re rewarding because we're seeing how we're contributing to, you know, these uh, countries where, where we live and operate. Awesome. That's super interesting to hear how both the, the Canadian presence that Alexa just described, um, as well as the local presence, really give you guys this unique opportunity to, to bring new sources of capital, but also have that impact on the ground. It's probably worth uh, adding that, especially in the uh, early years of renewable energy uh, project development here in the region, most of the capital that was financing these projects was coming uh, from international lenders and investors. So that, um, let's say that norm um, allowed the uh, project sponsors to, let's say, develop abilities to deal with them and, uh, and always uh, have access to that, you know, to those uh, players uh, over time. And so those, kind of relationships that perhaps were difficult at the beginning now are really, you know, helping to finance the, the projects that we see nowadays. From that point of view, I would say that the business community is, is quite receptive to international financiers and investors uh, within, their, within, within their projects, even if, uh, especially for the smaller ones, they still remain as, as private or family-owned businesses. That's great. I think, you know, that speaks to the nuance of, of how to bring in that outside international level investment to a local level where sometimes it can be perceived as, you know, uh, coming in from a, a developed market into into a, a smaller community. But you're, you guys are basically dispelling that myth and, and showing how that can be impactful, which is really awesome. Yeah, at the same time, uh, you have to realize that at least uh, in Central America and the Caribbean, there are no capital markets really. So it's not like you can go to the stock market and, 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 and raise capital for a project. It's usually, you know, private capital or private equity and then, uh, you know, debt from commercial or development banks. So from that point of view, the uh, project developers are used to, you know, opening up and, and perhaps, you know, selling participation to investment funds such as ours and at the same time dealing with development finance institutions, European or Americans or multilaterals in order to finance their projects. That may not necessarily be the case in, in larger countries such as Brazil, uh, Mexico, and perhaps Chile, I would say, but, but for the most of the other countries in the region, uh, again, with, with very uh, you know, incipient develop, uh, capital markets, uh, we totally rely on, on foreign investment in order to be able to uh, implement these uh, clean energy infrastructure projects. Great. So going into that, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the focuses that you have. Um, so from my understanding, two of your focus areas are women's empowerment and sustainable energy. 
Uh, so Alexa, this could go to you. I'm particularly interested in the women's empowerment arm of Deacon. Um, I, I'd love if you could explain a little bit more about what gender lens investing is. You had mentioned it earlier um, and why you have this focus on investing in women. Absolutely, I, I'd be happy to. So as, as Deacon Impact, uh, Broadly, we, we currently manage three funds, uh, the two funds focused on sustainable energy in, in Central America and the Caribbean, and then one fund focused on gender lens investing, which is the ELU Women's Empowerment Fund that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, so, I mean, gender lens investing, I, I guess at its, most, at its most simple is taking gender into consideration when you're making investment decisions. So it's analogous to ESG investing where, you know, you deliberately look at environmental and social characteristics of an investment when assessing potential risks and return. Um, and when it comes to gender, there's actually a lot of data now that, you know, women are key drivers of economic prosperity and equality. Um, and that increasing gender equality leads to poverty reduction and drives economic growth. Um, and that's at the kind of the macro level. And then there's also a lot of evidence that at the individual business level, having gender equality in the workplace enhances business performance. So as gender lens investors, we're looking for ways to integrate gender into our investment decisions because we believe it enhances returns and reduces risk. Um, for the for the ELU Women's Empowerment Fund, we look at companies through four lenses. So women in leadership, uh, products and services that benefit women and girls, uh, workplace equity, and then uh, value chain equity and advocacy. And we assess how the companies are doing in each of those areas using a detailed, we call it a gender smart scorecard. And uh, we're looking to invest uh, in the ones that either show leadership in one or more of those areas or show commitment to enhancing their practices or becoming a leader in one of those areas. Um, you know, I guess gender lens investing, it also means looking at our own practices and our own biases as investment managers. Um, so for example, like if you look at the composition of our investment committee and our board of directors and asking, are we bringing a diverse set of perspectives to investment decisions? Um, one statistic that like absolutely floored me was an IFC study that found that funds with gender balanced senior management teams generated investment returns that were 10 to 20% higher than those that had majority men or majority women leaders. And, uh, you know, I just can't believe like, how are hedge funds not like all over this? This is like an amazing um, way to enhance returns. Uh, in the case of the ELU Women's Empowerment Fund, um, one of the ways that we went to addressing this issue was um, through our partnership with um, Promujer, which is a leading Latin American women's development organization with presence in five countries in Latin America. And they've been for four decades working directly with women entrepreneurs, providing financial services, health and education. And, you know, they started as an investee of, of the fund, but over time, um, we, we formed a much closer partnership and actually have integrated Promujer into our investment committee and into the investment decision-making process. So in addition to the investment committee, we also have a gender smart uh, subcommittee that advises the investment committee on issues related to gender and works with our portfolio companies to identify um, 
objectives for improving their gender smart business practices. And we actually embed those, object, those objectives into our investment agreements. Um, and it's, it's really a work in progress. Gender lens investing is, is very new, um, but um, it's something that we're, we're really committed to because you know, we've, we've really seen the results of investing in women, um, both anecdotally, but also in, in the performance of our, of our portfolio. Wow, that's so impressive. And that statistic floored me as well. Oh my gosh. Um, but that it just speaks to how important know, right? is. <laughs> I know that's, that's impressive. Um, and I want to follow up. So I think this is, is so important. And I'm curious who your investors are within your women empowerment funds. And yeah, who, who is investing in this? And what does that typical investor look like? Yeah, so I mean, we started um, we started with a group of all, exclusively private sector investors, and you know because we were in Canada, um, you know we didn't really have access to some of the large foundations and family offices that often seed impact funds in in the states or, or in Europe, um, and so it was really a group of you know credit unions um, of uh, smaller family offices, foundations, and individuals that formed the um, the original kind of uh, body of the fund. And then most recently, we've brought in the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, um, DFC. It was formerly called OPIC um, as a senior lender to the fund. And that was as part of the uh, 2X initiative, um, which is, uh, I mean, 2X, it's a, it's a global initiative to um, advance gender equality uh, through kind of rallying together all of the development finance institutions. And 2X, I mean, is interesting because it's, you know, the it's the female chromosome, but it's also, you know, the multiplier effect of investing in women. And through the emphasis of 2X, um, you know, we were able to um, uh, access additional capital. Um, you know, we entered through the Innovative Financial Intermediaries program that uh, DFC offers. And so we were really excited to bring them on as an investor, which allows us to grow the fund and, um, you know, increase our impact. Great. And I think it's great that you're also aligning with the gender equality UNS SDG as well. Um, so this is just a really exciting opportunity. I'm curious to see where it goes in the future. Um, but I'll hand it over to you, Stephanie, um, to talk more about sustainable energy. Thanks, Leanne. And I just echo all the the wow factor of, of the gender equity work that you guys are doing. I, I love that 2X initiative, not just the work they do, but kind of that visual and the multi-purpose meaning behind their name. Um, but yes, onto the sustainable energy side, this question's for Fernando. Um, would love if you could share more about the importance of sustainable energy infrastructure in the communities where you work, which are often more susceptible to natural disasters and where renewable energy investment comes into play to address those challenges. Certainly. So modern and affordable electricity or energy is, is, basic, is basic to almost any economic activity uh, in the regions where we operate, uh, you know, infrastructure, clean energy infrastructure is uh, absolutely necessary. This is especially true and, and more evident in the rural and economically deprived communities where usually the uh, renewable energy projects uh, are, are located. Talk about small scale hydroelectric uh, plants, solar farms, wind farms, they are not necessarily located in, in urban centers, but rather in the, in the 
countryside. So that's uh, you know uh, makes the, the the need even even more uh, evident. So essentially, um, our investments are addressing uh, the not just the provision of uh, clean electricity to cope up with let's say energy demand uh, that you know these countries will need to continue supporting economic growth, but in addition to that. Uh, except for Costa Rica, maybe that is uh, uh, an exception in the in Latin American region because we generate almost all our electricity with renewable energy sources. But that reality is very different, uh, you know, throughout the region. So most countries are still relying on on expensive and, and polluting uh, thermal uh, generation, usually with diesel uh, and perhaps a little bit of bunker as well. And so um, these countries really need not just to add more installed capacity, which there's consensus to do it with renewable energy, but they also need to uh, gradually diver diversify their, their generation matrices to displace thermal uh, generation and incorporate renewable energy. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, catching up to do. In addition to that, it's, it's strategic to, you know, the let's say economic stability of these countries because you would essentially be uh, taking advantage of indigenous resources uh, rather than having to uh, you know, use dollars that you know, is not the currency of these countries to pay for imported uh, fuel to generate electricity. So that you know, is another concern uh, of these countries. Consider also that um, all these countries in the region have made important commitments under the Paris agreements to diversify their generation matrices. And, uh, and so in most cases, especially in the Caribbean, the, they are still lagging behind importantly. Uh, and certainly this pandemic COVID-19 is, is not helping actually, it's delaying those commitments. So there's even more pressure to really, uh, you know, uh, go to action and 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 start getting busy with the implementation of of those additional generation plans to again diversify the generation the generation matrix to obviously bring more resiliency and this is especially true of the Caribbean countries that are even more exposed to natural disasters. And we have seen that in the, in the last, I would say five years or so. Uh, and at the same time, you know, ensure that there's enough generation capacity to, you know, to cope up with demand, demand due to economic growth, but also due to demographic uh, growth. Um, now, with respect to, uh, Rural, uh, rural communities, as I was mentioning before, uh, in, in many cases, we see that uh, they don't necessarily have access to grid electricity. And usually our projects, whether they are distributed generation or grid connected utility scale, they normally, in addition to delivering electricity to, let's say, to a large consumer, or they would actually uh, bring electricity to, to, to communities that otherwise would perhaps had, wouldn't have had access to, to electricity uh, if there was, you know, in absence of, of those projects. So that's another 
very uh, important consideration. The, right. the, region, the region has abundant renewable energy resources. As I was mentioning before, in Central America, we still have abundance of hydroelectric potential in addition to wind and, and solar. In the Caribbean, is mainly solar power, perhaps some, some wind potential, but mainly solar. But, uh, you know, there's still so much to do. And then now with the development of the new technologies, especially battery storage, we see many more opportunities. There's so much packed into that response that I would love to dig into. Um, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this kind of to one question. But going back to what you were saying before about, um, you know, these commitments that these countries have made to the Paris Agreement and diversifying their energy generation. But currently there's the dependence on uh, fossil fuels uh, that are often expensive and imported. Is that influence of those, what I assume are bigger fossil fuel companies, um, part of the, the layers of challenges that uh, is delaying companies, or sorry, countries from diversifying? You know, you talked about COVID as further delaying that, but curious to know about the, the interplay between um, the dynamics of the, the fossil fuel presence and the investments that you guys are doing and trying to pivot them uh, towards renewables. Right. So I think that now uh, throughout the region, all the countries do have uh, incentives in place uh, for, for clean energy. It was not always like that. And, and what happened, especially in the uh, mid-90s as a result of privatizations and, and sort of deviating from the traditional state-owned utility uh, centralized model that did not necessarily uh, mean that new generation was going to come from clean energy, but actually from the easiest generation plants to implement, which are thermal. Uh, that was sort of what we saw in some countries like, for example, El Salvador, Guatemala. So it actually requires, uh, you know, regulations and incentives to, to gradually start shifting. Uh, I think that Central America was uh, perhaps uh, uh, earlier to, to bind to the importance of renewable energy as compared to the Caribbean. And in the Caribbean, we, you know, even though the electricity or the cost of electricity is twice or sometimes three times as higher or higher than what it is here in Central America, which is already twice as much as what you pay in the U.S. per kilowatt hour, um, there was not necessarily... Uh, unanimous convincement that renewable energy was the way to go. Uh, there were some countries, for example, Jamaica, that were taking the lead in trying to encourage renewable energy. But given that these countries are so small, it was actually difficult for them to, on their own, attract enough foreign investment to finance the you know, clean energy generation plants that were necessary. Uh, we have seen, uh, I would say perhaps in the last five years or so, that now the Caribbean region as a whole is consistent with respect to attracting um, investment capital for renewable energy. So now we see that there are you know, larger development groups that pay attention to the region because they can perhaps do a first project in, let's say, Jamaica and, and capitalize on that experience and gradually move to other Caribbean countries. And from that point of view, they achieve economies of scale. Uh, investors and lenders are then more interested and, and you generate more momentum. Um, so that's something that we are seeing and that's why 
um, again, in the last few years, we definitely see much more or many more transactions uh, and more things happening, which obviously is contributing to uh, stimulate uh, more investments in clean energy. Couple that with evidence uh, and very, you know, recent evidence of the um, huge uh, damages and, uh, and economic costs that climate change related events such as hurricanes can happen. And uh, I, I think that that just raises the sense of uh, urgency that, uh, you, know, you know, going green has throughout the region. Great, I, I think you kind of answered my next question. Um, but Deacon's doing such great work, and I was curious what is next for them in this space. Um, but you just touched upon so much, and especially with clean energy, I think there's so much more that you can continue to do. Um, but is there anything else you'd like to add on that? Uh, well, as, as we uh, gradually run out of investment capital with the funds under, under management, obviously, we want to uh, do more because we think that the opportunities uh, are enormous. Uh, there might be an evolution, perhaps from utility scale, uh, grid connected plants to perhaps more distributed uh, generation, smart grids, more resilient infrastructure, particularly in the Caribbean to deal with natural disasters. So all that is creating new opportunities. So. Whereas with the current funds, we have a combination of some investments, I would say 50-50 between utility scale, uh, grid connected plants, and then distributed generation, particularly for commercial and industrial clients. In the future, we think that with a, with a, with a new fund that we will probably start structuring early next year uh, to service not just Central America and the Caribbean, but probably the whole LAC region, we want to perhaps be open to new opportunities on, you know, uh, distributed generation, smart grids, e-mobility, all the infrastructure for, um, you know, uh, to charge uh, electric transportation. And at the same time, we see big opportunities on battery storage that uh, can work very nicely with the investments that we have already made in, uh, on certain renewable energy generation plants. So we are looking into all that. At the same time, we see opportunities. Uh, I mean, traditionally, we have been doing mainly project finance. So we invest uh, in projects that, are, that have reached feasibility and are shovel ready. But at times, we also see uh, or identify many opportunities that are at an early stage uh, and, did, and need um, development finance, and, and, but with the current funds, we, we don't do that. So for a new larger fund, we want to perhaps uh, be able to keep some, some, a portion of that fund to also invest in early state uh, development uh, as an, sort of a, a natural perhaps way of developing deal flow and opportunities for let's say the more traditional uh, part of what we have been doing, which is project finance. So um, we, we are already starting to perhaps uh, design the fund, think about you know, the investment strategies, the type of vehicles, the type of perhaps projects that we want to support, uh, the, the type of partners that we might want to add to the group as well to be more effective. 
and all these are very exciting uh, things. At some point in time, we'll probably start, uh, maybe early next year, uh, we'll probably start, uh, you know, getting some anchor investors on board, even though we, we do have conversations with um, several of them representing from development finance institutions to impact investors, foundations, uh, private, you know, high net worth individuals and so on. Great. Anything to follow yeah. up on that, Alexa? Yeah, no, I was just, I was going to say, you know, at, at this point, the three funds that we manage across the, the whole Deepkin Impact organization, you know, each fund is between 25 and $35 million US, so total AUM of like $100 million. And so, I mean, these are not large funds from a, from a mainstream capital markets perspective, um, but within impact, they're, you know, of reasonable size. And, and I think in the case of, for all three funds, actually, the, the feedback that we got while we were raising capital was, you know, uh, will there be enough pipeline, right? Um, are there enough opportunities that fit the criteria that you've described? So in the case of the sustainable energy funds, small and medium-sized projects in, in a relatively small region of Central America and the Caribbean, you know, that are impactful, that have commercial financial returns. Um, and then in the case, you know, on the, on the gender lens side, kind of the same questions. And so I think, you know, what we're trying to do with, with the, the dispersed, you know, with dispersing these funds is to really kind of prove that out. And I think, you know, having done that, we'll be in really good shape to, to approach investors around, around larger funds. And I think it's clear that the pipeline is there. Um, and as Fernando said, you know, we're really just getting started. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of sectors that we haven't even tapped into that are kind of outside the investment universe of our existing fund vehicles. So we're super, super excited about the opportunities um, in front of us. And, you know, I think also the opportunities to continue to bring new investors in as we are able to demonstrate the track record, um, which I think is always what, you know, going to be investors' first question, um, especially those that are kind of just dipping their toe into impact or into emerging markets. It really sounds like there's so much great work for you guys on the horizon. Um, and Unfortunately, we are just at the end of our time here today, but we have one final question. If you're able to provide some, some quick advice to uh, those of us and others who are potentially interested in getting involved with the space, if you have your 30-second kind of uh, Twitter-length spiel on uh, what would you recommend to someone looking to, to get into the space and helping bring capital to you know, make a local impact in communities across the world? I mean, it depends on, on where you want to work, uh, but if it is in emerging markets, I think that you definitely need to uh, develop your networks. And obviously that requires traveling, something that can be a little bit challenging <laughs> right now, but I think that it's absolutely necessary. I, I think that part of our success is, is you know, the networks um, and, and really mastering the culture. Uh, so, if again, if it is in emerging markets, wherever they might be, I, I think that you have to actually start by trying to develop the networks. If it is more like in domestic markets, uh, you know, the same applies, developing the networks, maybe mastering the culture is, is not so important, but, but you still need to perhaps um, uh, start developing uh, those relationships. Might be perhaps too big, uh, you know, you say clean energy or renewable energy or sustainable energy, might might be something that sounds like a niche, but it's such an, uh, a broad sector that perhaps for starters, if I was someone without necessarily 
a lot of previous experience, I would try to perhaps, you know, specialize on a, on a certain either technology or business model before trying to perhaps uh, do, you know, uh, something much more comprehensive. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I think that's great advice. And, um, you know, the, the impact space is is really growing and there's there's room for people from a lot of different disciplines, like within, you know, just our company, we have people, you know, who have a background in engineering, in economics, in accounting, um, a lot of engineers, actually. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of different paths you can take um, into into the impact space. But I think, you know, as Fernando mentioned, it's really about tapping into your your local community of kind of like minded people. So in Canada, you know, especially you know, 10 years ago, the impact community was was really, really um, small, but also very welcoming. And so, you know, we found um, the networks that we've developed, you know, each of us in our in the countries where we live to be really, really helpful. Um, in terms of raising capital, finding pipeline opportunities, finding great staff, um, all of those, all of those things. So, um, you know, I think whatever country you're in, there's there's increasingly um, a group of people that you can that you can get to know. That's super helpful, both of you. Um, so, thank you for that advice, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It was a super fascinating conversation, and I, I hope those listening also took away just as much as I know I did, and I'm sure Leanne did. So. Uh, yeah, thank you again. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thanks, Leanne. It was a great time. Thank you both. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Learn more about Deetkin Impact and the topics discussed in this episode by visiting deetkinimpact.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, September 18th. We'll be speaking with Lily Traeger of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.